So we're in chapter 48 of Genesis, and as you can see, we got a boatload of verses, and there's more up there, or more besides those, and we'll, they're close by though, so we'll just do some flipping and get you used to uh, having a Bible in your hands and seeing the word for yourself so that you, uh, you know, don't get ripped off, basically, um, because unless you see the word for yourself and you're studying it for yourself, um, uh, you know, it's just somebody talking. And drawn close to him through his word is where, where, why we're here. So I'm going to read through, starting back in uh, 27 of chapter 47. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. And then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of his bed and the head of the bed. And now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat upon the bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people, and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who are born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, uh, your offspring whom you beget after them, shall be yours, and they will be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance." But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way, where there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, Who are these? Joseph said to his father, These are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, Please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, so he could not see. And then Joseph brought them near, and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact God has also shown me your offspring. And Joseph brought them from beside his knees and bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand, toward Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand, towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out in his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand and Manasseh's head, guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, Bless the lads. Let my name be upon them. 
Let the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. And now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, well, it displeased him. And so he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. But truly his younger brother shall be greater than he. And his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And so he blessed them that day, saying, By Israel will bless, saying, or I said, By you Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And thus he set up Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am dying, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. Moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So chapters 48, um, chapter 48, Jacob is old, he's sick, unto death. Joseph finds out, he brings his sons. Jacob recounts uh, God's blessing him. And he said to him, the same that God told uh, Jacob, you know, be faithful, or I will be faithful, numerous, a company, I'm sorry, fruitful is the word. Be fruitful, numerous, a company of people. But to the land, he said to his descendants, for an everlasting possession. I put that in big capital letters because so often people think that uh, God has forsaken Israel and no longer uh, considers Israel to be since the church and, and all. But uh, God is indeed still going to work with Israel, and we've talked about that much. But in verses 5 through 7, Israel takes Ephraim and Manasseh to be his own. So there were 12 sons of Jacob, you know, including Joseph. And uh, now he says to Joseph, well, these two are going to be like Simeon and, and uh, who's the other one? Um, as Reuben and Simeon, I think, as they are to me as sons, so are you, your two sons going to be to me. So now there's 14. Jacob has 14 sons that he's counting as his own. And he does it specifically in context of the land being an everlasting possession in verse 4. Um, so the 12 become 14, but and then he says, the rest of the children that you uh, are yours, they will be called by the names of these other two brothers. They're not going to be called the children of Joseph in the land of Israel. They're going to be called the children of Ephraim and Manasseh. And so these were the, uh, um, the 14 that, that Jacob had declared to be his own sons. So Jacob's, and he goes on to say that... Um, Jacob's sorrow was losing Rachel on the way back from Padan Haram when he was up by Laban and, and bringing her back and then giving birth to Benjamin. She labored hard, it said, and she, she died in labor, and just before she died, named him. And Jacob named him Benjamin. And uh, his sorrow was losing Rachel. And it was in Bethlehem, Ephra, and you probably recognize that, from obviously New Testament and throughout the Old Testament, but Bethlehem Ephrathah is where, um, if you want to turn, well, you don't have to turn there. I'm just going to quote Ruth chapter 4, 11. It says, Ruth says, and is blessed by those around her that indeed God will raise up 
a tribe in Israel, a house in Israel unto Rachel, it says, at Ephrathah, which is Bethlehem. This is also where King David came from, from the tribe um, of, uh, of Judah, I believe, and where David was from, and Jesus also was born in Bethlehem. Matthew 2.18, when King Herod, the paranoid, was slaughtering one- and two-year-olds, it says Rachel was weeping for her children as he went throughout all the land, but he came to Israel or came to Bethlehem, seeking that king who the wise men had said was in Bethlehem, and he was trying to wipe out that competition. And so again, it says Rachel is weeping for her children. So indeed, through all time, you know, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, was known as where Rachel and Jacob's sorrow for losing her was. And so Jacob names Ephraim and Manasseh among the tribes of Israel, talks about the land and how they would have an inheritance there of their own land. And we'll see all that as we continue through the first five books of Moses, Lord willing. It's um, called the Pentateuch. It's called the Torah, um, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And then uh, after that, then Joshua, and Joshua is the one that brings him into the land. But those first five books, the books of the law is called, um, we're just about to finish up Genesis in the next couple of weeks, if not a week from now, Lord willing. And if he tarries. But in verses 8 through 11, um, now he sees the boys. You know, he, he'd already been considering uh, Joseph's sons because he had this blessing in his mind. He had this laying the right hand on the left, and we'll get into that, um, and, and switching that up. And he'd been thinking about it. But now he's, who are these that are with you, Joseph? Well, these are those sons that, that we're talking about. And uh, so Joseph's replies, these are them, the sons God gave me in Egypt. And Jacob embraces them and expresses joy. And he says, you know, I never even thought I would see you. You were dead. Um, and I thought you were lost forever. But now, not only do I see you, but I see that you have offspring and you're raising up children. Um, so verses 12 through 14, Joseph directed the older to Jacob's right hand. And um, this is actually the first time uh, specifically that the phrase the right hand or the a person's right hand as being any kind of significance. And so he directed uh, Jacob's right hand for the blessing. But the younger Ephraim was chosen by Jacob on purpose, even though Manasseh was the firstborn and would have had Joseph's birthright. And as far as Joseph knew, he was one of the 12 tribes. Well, now he's finding out that his two sons will be. But it brings up the question, albeit a kind of a simple question, why the right hand? What's the significance? What's the difference between the right hand and the left hand? And why did um, jo uh, Jacob switch over and, and Joseph displeased by that? So looking through scriptures, Exodus 15, if you want to turn there, you know, as if you're familiar at all and been studying through the Word of God, you know that there's a, a significance to the right hand of God as we get into this. But verses 6 and then 12 um, of Exodus 15. 
in verse 6, um, and this is the song of Moses without reading the whole thing, um, just lifting up the Lord who had protected them and taking care of Pharaoh and his chariots and, and uh, getting them through the Red Sea. And in verse 6, he says, Your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy to pieces. And down in verse 12, you're, you stretched out your right hand to the, and the earth swallowed them. And your mercy, you have led forth your people whom you have redeemed and you guided them in your strength. So, first off, I want to say there's nothing here that's any more significance between a righty and a lefty. Um, I happen to be related to some lefties and they do okay. <laughs> you know, so I'm not, uh, I'm going to hear about that, I'm sure, in a little bit. But uh, it's, it's, uh, there's, that's not what's being said here. There's no difference for a person if they happen to be a left-handed person or a right-handed person. Um, that's not what this is about. What is it about? So in Deuteronomy 33, without turning there, um, verse 2, it says, The fiery law came from God's right hand. And uh, if you want to turn to Psalm 16, and as we read them, you can kind of keep up. We'll be going through the Psalms and Isaiah and all here real quick. Um, Psalm 16 8 through 11. It says, I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand and I shall not be moved. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So this is the strength. David's talking about the right hand being the strength. So whether you're a lefty or a righty, so happens that more common is the righty. And so, so he's talking about God's right hand. And that's the idea here is not whether left or right, but he declares his right hand as his strength. The whole idea of all of that refers to when it comes to to the right hand of God, it's his strong hand. It's, you know, it's, for me, it's the one I swing the hammer with, or it's, it's the one that I use if I really got to get through something because my left just ain't going to be able to do it. And so it's that strength where God preserves resurrection, it says here, because there will be pleasures evermore. That's the resurrection and eternal life. David speaks of pleasures, and he says forevermore, and, and speaking of life after death and eternity with God. And if you turn just a cup, one page to Psalm 20, verse 6, it's not in your list there. Um, but it's only a page away, so I didn't throw it up on the board. Just verse 6 says, Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. Again, it's that strength, that saving strength. If you go to Psalm 110, and this is a well-known psalm. It's quoted in the New Testament. We'll probably see that here a little later as we go through this. Just the first five verses. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power in the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning 
You have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand, and he shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. And just to finish it out, he shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. There he shall lift up, or therefore he shall lift up the head. So it's again his strength, and it's also by that same strength that he is going to, you know, rule and he's going to rule out of zion and it's this it's the hand he holds the rod in the scepter in verse two and so he will make his enemies his footstool by that strength of his right hand and in psalm 118 is just one page if you can flip there um just the first 16 verses you know if anything what we're talking about is god's strength and and more than anything, so that we know who it is that we trust and know who it is and what it is that is upholding us. It's not, you know, it's, we know that uh, it's nothing for the Lord to, with a breath or with a, the flick of his pinky, to wipe out the universe. He's Almighty God. So, what does it mean now when he does these things with his full strength, his strongest arm? that he has, he's doing these things, not with just because of a simple strength of his or a simple little whim or, or anything like that. It's with his full strength intentionally. And that's kind of why I'm going with all this. And Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let Israel now say, his mercy endures forever. Let the house of Aaron now say, his mercy endures forever. And let those, you and me, who fear the Lord now say, His mercy endures forever. I called on the Lord in distress. The Lord answered me and set me in a broad place. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I shall see my desire on those who hate me. It is better to trust in the Lord trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. There's wisdom. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in princes. That's really a recent truth for us, isn't it? All nations surrounded me, but in the name of the God, in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me, but in the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. They surrounded me like bees, and they were quenched like a fire of thorns. For the name of the Lord, I will destroy them. You pushed me violently that I might fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The voice of rejoicing rejoicing and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. Why? Because the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And again, the right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. So again, we often think that's nothing for the Lord to act, but he's operating for us out of his strength. And when David looks to the Lord at his right hand, when the Lord is at his right hand, when he's fighting, it's not anything that's taken lightly. It's something that God's doing with every bit of his strength. And um, that's how much he loves us and cares for us. You know, why would any loving father 
hold back anything to protect those of his kids and to provide for them. Would, would, a, would a father go out there and be halfway with trying to, to protect his kids? Well, no, he's going to go out there with his strength, as the Lord does for us. Isaiah 41, and again, we talked about a little bit with David, but just first 13 verses, says, Keep silent before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near and let them speak, and let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east and who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Or who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had gone with his feet? Who has performed it and done it? Calling the generations from the beginning, from creation, I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am he. The coastlands saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid and drew near and came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, Be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith who smooths with the hammer and inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying it was ready for soldering, and he fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. But you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, who I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth, and called from the farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Remember, he's uh, possession forever. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, and yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing. All those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you, shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. And so he strengthens our right hand. But notice, you know, even though they're incensed, and we look around today, we see the world going the same way it was the days of Noah, the same way it was at the Tower of Babel. We see man building what man wants to build, and we see wickedness in our kindergartens. And you know God is going to judge. And you know God is going to do it with his strength. He's going to do it with his right hand. His righteousness comes out of his right hand. We, in Deuteronomy, the fury of the, the law comes from his right hand. It comes from that most strong part of the Lord and um, the strength of him. And he says, these guys, you know, much of the world, you know, is incensed against us these days just for telling the truth. I mean, even Whoopi the other day I read, you know, says that uh, the big problem and why this happened in Colorado was the, the, what, the conservatives, the religious, and the Republicans. Okay, well, you know, whether or not we're Republicans or whether or not we're conservatives politically in America, the entire world of true believers are going to be telling the truth, no matter what country they're in or what constitution they have. And the world is going to be incensed against them. Same way they were incensed at Stephen when he preached to the Jews and they gnashed their teeth. It's, it's beyond reason. It's insanity, the, what we watch. It's such foolishness that we see. 
Well, that's what the Lord is going to, with the, the strongest thing he has with his right hand, where his strength is, he's going he's gonna to reach out. And those that are incensed, they're going to be brought to shame, he says. Um, Isaiah 48, 13, his right hand stretched out the heavens. Matthew 25, 31 to 34, Jesus keeps his sheep at his right hand, at his strength. Again, the most important, precious thing to any father is the children. And to the most important and precious thing to Jesus is his sheep, you and I. And he keeps us right there at his strength and watching over us. If you want to turn to Matthew 26, um, 64, just one verse, or I'll just read it for you. You know, it is as you said, nevertheless, and I say to you, um, you know, he had faced, he'd come before the, the Pharisees and all, and, and the high priest and, and all, and this is when they were going to drag him off um, to the cross. And, and he said, it is as you said, nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power. That right hand is power of the Almighty God. And then coming on the clouds of heaven. You know, Jesus sits at the right hand of power. That word power means his strength, all of his ability, his wealth of force. So all the power of God is where Jesus sits. And, you know, we often think of him being... Um, you know, limitless and eternal, and he is indeed. And so we think of, of uh, that uh, ability that he has. Well, that's where he, he set his son. And if any, there's any majesty, if there's any royalty in any kingdom, well, who gets that royalty? Who gets that majesty? It's passed on to the son. And here it is, that strength and that ability is given to Jesus. And the father did put all things in his hands. Well, what does that look like now for us. If you want to go to Mark 16, and just the last chapter of Mark and the last two verses. So when Jesus sat down at the right hand, in verse 19 there of Mark 16, so then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven. And he sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them, and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Amen. So now they go out. Here's the Lord at the right hand. What does it look like for us in our lives with the Lord sitting at the right hand? Well, when we go out, when we go out preaching the gospel, his strength is there. If you have self-confidence, well, don't. <laughs> have confidence in him. It's, uh, you know, have confidence in this instead, that at the right hand of God, when you're speaking to people, that is the strength and the power and the ability that is uh, working in and through you. If you have no self-confidence and you're timid and shy, well, then take this confidence and realize that he is, his power, all of the power of the right hand of God is with you when you're giving somebody the gospel, that power and he at the right hand of the Father is present with you when you share the gospel. So God is that power. It's right there. Now, that's often why you'll get him intimidated. And that's often why you will, you know, have fear. Um, and it's from the enemy. Because 
this is that, part, that point. This is the point of conflict. This is the war between the enemy and the church and the war between the enemy and God is that sharing of the gospel, is that place where God's almighty power is and that you would go out and you would share with somebody in that strength and in that might and that power of God, well, that's what the enemy is at war with. And he's going to try and intimidate you and he's going to try and put fear in you. And instead of that, instead, just ignore that. Don't be intimidated by that. Don't be distracted by that. Instead, focus on where Jesus is sitting right now, that the creator of all the, earth, the, the universe with a word simply saying, let it be. And uh, it was. Well, now at his right hand where his strength is, I mean, it's one thing to say something and have it be accomplished. It's a whole other thing to put your hand with all your strength and your power, the right hand of God, and cause something to happen. And so, you know, he's no match for God Almighty, our enemy. He's no match for the power of God unto salvation with all that strength and that power at his right hand. Don't be distracted by that. Don't be intimidated by that if you are. And, you know, I guess it's kind of a, a saying or something. Fear is, um, is always going to be with us. But what courage is, is despite the fear, you do what you were intended to do, that you went out to do. You're not discouraged. That's what courage is, isn't it? To just go out and say the things that you were, were going to do and say for the Lord, despite the encouragement, despite the distractions and the intimidation. So I guess the whole reason I go into all this is because of that, uh, that we know how much power is there for us at our disposal when we go and preach the gospel. And then in Acts 2, referring back to that verse we read in Psalm 110, um, when the disciples were going out and preaching, the very first time, Peter's sermon, if you look then down in verse 25 to 34, he says, For David said concerning him, I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is at my right hand, and I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart rejoiced, and my tongue was glad. Moreover, my flesh also will rest in hope. For you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make known to me, or make me full of joy in your presence. Men and brethren, let me speak freely to you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried in his tomb with us to this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that the fruit of his body, according to the flesh, would raise up, uh, Christ and sit on his throne for he foreseeing this spoke concerning the resurrection of Christ that his soul was not left in Hades nor did his flesh see corruption this Jesus God has raised up of which we are all witnesses therefore being exalted to the right hand of God having received from the, uh, the father the promise of the Holy Spirit he poured out this which you now see and hear for David did not ascend into heaven's but he says himself, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And so referring to Psalm 110, confirming the power that uh, raised Jesus from the dead and set him at the right hand of God. And that's that same power. He's saying, you guys, you know, you're seeing all this take place. And here he's speaking to the Gentiles. There are people from all over. There are Jews and Gentiles at Peter's first sermon. And they were saying they were drunk. Well, no, it's not that we're drunk. This is, you know, it's only, what, six or eight, nine in the morning. 
you know, this is where the Bible prophesied, the Old Testament prophesied, Joel, I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy as he talks about and he goes on to preach. And it's through that power that comes from where Jesus is and by the Holy Spirit through us who dwells in us. That same power, that same strength. Not just a little bit of God, you know, just saying this or that. No, his right hand. That's the power, his strength. He's not just uh, casual about the things he works in our lives. He's putting everything from his strength into it. And, um, you know, we just have to go and not be intimidated and do what he's asked us to do. Acts 7, just a couple pages to the right, just two verses, 55 and 56. Stephan, in the same way, we talked about him earlier, you know, just before these guys ended up, well, actually, I should say just after these guys ended up gnashing their teeth at him, incensed at him, like eventually, in, I'm sure in the days that we're living in, we're going to see it. If you haven't already seen it on YouTube or on some of these, you know, people who try and speak the truth and uh, speak the truth about God's love for the unborn uh, and his righteous you know, word towards when life begins. You know, people get incensed, and you see it. Um, Well, here these guys were convicted by Stephan, and um, as he had preached to them, and he also, in verse 49, quotes 110, Psalm 110, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. Uh, What house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what place of my rest? Has not my right hand made all these things? Uh, my right or my hand made all these things. But in fifty-five, he says, "Being, but he, Stephen, being full of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God.' And they cried out, and there they go. Um, you know, they were." also incensed. You know, so Stephen actually saw, Stephen actually saw our Lord standing at the right hand of, of, of the Father. And that, you know, it's, it's not just a place where somebody sits with, you know, being preferred over here on the right than on the left so you can reach over or anything like that. This is a place of the full power of God. Romans 8 in verses 31 through 39, what does this look like in our lives, eh? What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? And it is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long, and we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. What can we say to these things? What is it that we're persuaded of? Are we persuaded of these things? Is Jesus at the right hand? And is that the same Jesus that we put our trust in, the Jesus of the Bible, not one that we've made up that kind of fits the Mormon thing and kind of fits the Chrislam thing with Islam and kind of the Oprah thing that he's just the Christ consciousness in me. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible was the one and only begotten Son of God who raised from the dead and who sits now at the right hand of the Father. It's central to the gospel that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God who reigns with power from the right hand of God. Now it's key in the book of Ephesians, it talks about the right hand, Jesus being at the right hand, also in Colossians when he's writing to the Gentiles, Paul does, but also when he wrote to the Hebrews, he's writing to the, the Jewish readers and how it was prophesied that Messiah Jesus would be seated at the right hand of God. This meant something to them. They knew what it meant when uh, they would say that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. Well, then, you know, this is either blasphemy or he truly is the Messiah. He truly is the Christ. And so when he's writing to the Hebrews, he makes that case in, in, in chapter 1, you know, he says that uh, the majesty, the only son, would be the heir. And, and also in chapter 1, it's not to any angels that it was given. It's to, to the one and only son. In chapter 8, he's the high priest, and we read that already too. But, and then in chapter 10, the one that was sacrificed for our sins. And then in chapter 12, the author and finisher of our faith. And you know, I'm really overjoyed that he's the author, but more than anything, that he's the finisher of my faith. Because if it were up to me to get it done, to get to where I need to be for, uh, in my faith that's still growing and still being worked out in my life from glory to glory, faith to faith, you know, I'm so glad that he's the finisher. He's going to finish the job that he began in me. And that blesses me. And uh, blesses me that he's doing that in your lives too. Um, but that, uh, you know, it's not my own power, it's him. First Peter, without turn there, chapter 3.22, all angels, like we just read, all authorities and powers have been made subject to him. And then in First Peter 4, he says, that's the same power that, you know, allows us to no longer walk in sin. Again, he's doing this work in us. We just need to obey and listen and do what he's working in us. I don't have the strength of my own self to keep myself from wandering after whatever. And the same is true for you. But he is working in us. And it's because that same power that's at the right hand of God and all. And so the same true here for Jacob. You know, he's, a, he's assigning to the younger Ephraim the strength of God's right hand, the strength of his right hand. He's putting that preeminence, he's putting that uh, blessing on the younger with his right hand. It's the first place in scripture that talks about the right hand having a significance. And Joseph knew it. He says, wait a minute, I'm displeased with this. Tries to move his hand over. And, uh, you know, Jacob says, he, I know what I'm doing, Joseph. I know I'm, the, the, your, your Manasseh, your older son, he'll be something. But Ephraim is going to be strength and the blessing that comes with being the firstborn. 
He knew what he was doing. It's not like when he tricked Isaac, his, his father, to steal the birthright from Esau. You know, this is when, uh, you know, Isaac is, or uh, Jacob is intentionally blessing um, the first, uh, to be the first, like the firstborn, and have the, the birthright go to Ephraim. So Joseph, Joseph um, Jacob points out also here, it was God, the God of his fathers, who Abraham and Isaac walked before. If you go back to verse, back in Genesis, verse 15 and 16, Genesis 48, 15 and 16, he says, um, he blessed Joseph and said, God, before my fathers, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them. In other words, it's my sons. They go by Jacob's tribes and no longer by Joseph's tribes. And Abraham also and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. He says, God before his fathers walked. In Genesis 5, that's where Enoch walked with God. Now Enoch, even though he was walking with God, he had a family. He raised sons and daughters. And so, you know, there's no reason why you can, you know, you can't walk with God and still raise a family. Some people might think it's a little more tricky, but um, there's really no reason why you can't raise a family while you're walking with God, obviously. Um, and it's not really a hinder to your walk. In fact, it now makes your walk with the Lord an example to these, like Abraham and Isaac were examples to, J- to Jacob. And how Jacob is telling Joseph now, you know, look at the example. Jacob, um, or Joseph, your grandfather and your great-grandfather, they walked before God. And so um, Genesis 6 talks about Noah was perfect in his generation, and he walked with God. In Genesis 17, 1, Abraham was called to walk before God and to be blameless. And the word blameless there means perfect, but it means complete, whole, entire, soundly, unimpaired, with, and it has integrity according to truth and fact. In other words, all the parts are there. There's no parts missing. It doesn't have to do with this walking every single step you take is the perfect step, and every single thing you say and do is the perfect thing. Um, it's, it's having to do with your faith and having to do with that. All the, all the parts are there. All the pieces are there to walk with the Lord. If you want to turn to Micah, 6, verse 8, as we read it, you'll know that we often sing the song here. I don't know about how often, but um, it's a, a very simple truth. How does this look on our lives, you know, that Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the Father? Well, Jacob told Joseph that um, this is how your forefathers walked with the Lord. In Micah 6.8 he says, He has shown you, old man, what is good, what the Lord requires of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Now he shows us, which means God has put it out there. It's out in the open for all to see. It's been announced. It's been published. It's been declared. That's what it means that he has shown us. 
and it says to do justly. And it, and it means just or justice, but it means regarding only God's decisions and ordinances, not some social justice that's meant to just accommodate people's sinful lives, trying to get society to, to uh, follow along with these new lifestyles, and, and therefore if you say anything against them, that's, you know, we need to get the society to raise up and have, you know, do crowd, what do they call it, crowd, um, I don't know. But anyways, it's the thing where now everybody's opinion, if there's enough people crowding around, it becomes their, the justice that's of the society in these days. I mean, what, what do you think social justice looked like at Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> it's just a thing that uh, doesn't make any sense. There's no justice whatsoever. There was all manner of mayhem and perversion. So to do justly, the, the justice that God's decisions and ordinances are built on. To love mercy. The word mercy there really is goodness, kindness, faithfulness in the face of reproach and shame. And so to walk humbly means modest and lowly. And it becomes quite reasonable when you remember that mercy was shown to you in the midst of your shame to walk humbly. You know, you don't see a lot of guys holding their heads up real, real uh, high if their T-shirt is showing how, what they're all ashamed of. It's, like, it's more like, you know, please cover me. Well, that's mercy. You know, that which you deserved, you know, was put on Jesus. You were shown that great mercy. And so, you know, walk that way. Walk humbly. Walk modest and lowly because your shame has been taken and the mercy has been shown to you for those things. If you want to turn to Ephesians 4, what does this look like on the believer? What does a walk look like on you and me? Ephesians 4, 1 through 3 says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, walk worthy of the calling for which you were called, with all lowliness, there's that one again, and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The context is back from chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, um, talking about the Lord, what he's done, and to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly, above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us. That little bit of God just saying, hey, we'll just kind of do this casually. No, that power, the right hand, the strongest thing, the part he swings the bat with, the part that he will judge with, his righteousness. All that power, to him be glory in the church, by Christ Jesus to all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And therefore, walk this way. He says, because God is working in us, walk worthy of the calling. And what that means is worthy is suitable, just simply in the manner that's, that fits, in a manner that's worthy of that calling and because of what he's done for us. And uh, it fits. And then with lowliness, having, you know, really I like these Greek definitions here. Lowliness means having a humble opinion of oneself and a deep sense of one's littleness. I like that. <laughs> I mean, I don't personally, who likes to look at themselves little, you know, belittle themselves. But truthfully, you know, in light of him, 
and with the joy and the rest and the peace that we have in him, that's really what it is. Our flesh might not like it, but to have a deep sense of one's littleness. And not that you have to go around and keep telling everybody how little you are and how you know, lowly you are. I mean, if you've got to say it, it probably isn't you know, as necessarily as little as it should be. <laughs> and so, uh, but in and of, it's an opinion of one's self. You don't have to share it. It'll show up in your life. But your own opinion of yourself is, you know, a deep sense of one's littleness. Then there's gentleness, just means to be mild and meek. And uh, long-suffering is that patience and endurance, constancy, let steadfastness, perseverance and forbearing, slow, slowness in avenging wrongs, that long-suffering. You know, it's funny, that's when things start to get long when you're suffering is when you're really starting to want to take action into your own hands. You want to take things into your own hands. You don't want to suffer any longer. And so it's that not uh, avenging anything that's happening to you or the wrong that was done to you. It's you're slow in that. That's the last thing you want to do. Be long-suffering. Then it says to bearing in love, but the word bearing, to hold up firm, sustain, to bear, to endure with others. And he says in love, and that love is agape. You're familiar with the different Greek agape and uh, uh, agape and phileo. And uh, those are the primary ones used in the Bible. Phileo is city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Phileo is a brotherly kind of a love, a family, a natural kind of love. Agape is a, is a, a love that gives itself completely over to something at its own expense, not expecting anything in return. What's weird is some of the places where the word agape is used is of the Pharisees who agapied the chief seats so that they would get the recognition but they gave themselves over to it so much that that totally consumed them that they, that's what they, uh, they agapied the high seats, the chief seats in the, in the assemblies and all. But it's that, you know, have that love. That love specifically because you're bearing up with uh, being patient with others. Then it says unity. And that unity simply means like-mindedness or being in agreement with and all. And peace is interesting. Um, it's that tranquil state, this particular definition in the Greek. Um, and again, I'm not a Greek scholar. I look these things up on a Blue Letter Bible or some program. But it just brings so much meaning to it. Um, the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation. Think about that. You have the peace because you're assured that you're saved. And it's through Christ. And so fearing nothing from God and content with its, with its earthly lot and whatsoever sort that is. You have peace because you have what you need from the Lord. You're not fearing anything from God because you've got peace with God through Jesus Christ. And you have the peace of God. And he's talking about that. It's a tranquil state of the soul, but it's also a spiritual a real thing, because you're content with your earthly lot. That's the result of it. And, you know, whatever sort you have, and no matter what your poverty is or no matter what your wealth is, you're content with what you have. 
And, and you might say, well, anybody be content if they're wealthy. Well, the most discontented people are the wealthy. It's always got to be a little bit more. They always got to have more than the guy across the street or has, who lives in the 100th floor of the New York building across the way. He's got a better flat than I got. I got to get a bigger and better one. You, know, you look at that unbelievable uh, greed that comes because the more you have, the more you want. Just a little bit more, they say. It also means exemption or the absence of rage and havoc of war. That word peace in the Greek. Well, that intrigued me because who wants to be around a guy or a gal that's always looking for a fight and wreaking havoc wherever they go? And, you know, you're supposed to have the unity. You're supposed to be bearing up in love with your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And uh, how are you going to have that peace, that tranquil state? If And it says the bond of peace. So who wants to be bonded to that person that is always wanting to fight? That's always trying to wreak havoc wherever they go. I just found that interesting. I'd much rather be bound to a brother or sister who is assured of their salvation and content with their status. I mean, they're, they're fun to hang around. I mean, they're not always complaining about their situation. They're not always uh, afraid that they're going to lose everything they have. They're not always raging about what's going on in the world or complaining about what's going on in the world. And, you know, but they're looking for that life that comes that will come when we go to be with the Lord. And for now, this is what we have. We're content. So back to Genesis. And um, also we'll be hitting John chapter 4 one more time or uh, before we're done. But uh, verses 17 through 20 in uh, Genesis 48. Again, we saw Joseph tries to correct Jacob, but Jacob knows what he's doing. But he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh that it would be said, it's a blessing to be made like them for they're so blessed. In other words, the saying goes around Israel and around that uh, in Israel they say, boy, it's a blessing to be blessed like Ephraim is and like Manasseh is. And so Jacob says right there in verse 20 that he put Ephraim before Manasseh, put his right hand on in his head, in verse 21 and 22, Jacob tells Joseph that he will one day return to the land of his fathers. It takes place in Exodus 13, 19, where um, Moses brings the bones of Joseph back to bury them in Israel. And um, I don't know if I said this wrong last week or not, but I said something about Jacob being dying in Egypt and then getting carried back with Moses, but they went back. And we'll see that here in the next chapter too and buried Jacob in Israel. But he talks about the Amorites. And uh, we don't have to turn there for lack of time, but in Genesis 14, 7, uh, and 15, 16, and 21, God tells Abraham that the Amorites are his timepiece for Israel to return. Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. They're going to go down into Egypt and for Four generations and 400 years, they're going to be there. And because the Amorites' sin is not yet full. It's, it's almost like, to me, a very prophetic verse for what we're dealing with in our lives here today. I mean, we're still meeting here in freedom. And we got heat and we got light and we got, uh, you know, cars to come and go and get back and forth and we got food in our refrigerators. Um, there's coming a day when the sin 
of this country and, and the rest of the world is full. That's when God is going to bring his kingdom back. We're going to be raptured and taken out. Because, in fact, he is desiring that none would perish. And the only reason he's patient and that we're still here is that there's some left to be saved in the world. And so that we can share the gospel and all. And, uh, but when, that, when there's none left, when the sin of this earth is full, and God's going to come. He's going to press out that wine press, and the blood's going to run ankle deep in the nation of, or uh, waist deep. Um, in the, and as he judges this earth, you know, the, the, the wine press of his wrath. God's a loving God, but he's poured out his wrath on Jesus Christ. And those that refuse him, their sin remains because that wrath has been poured out on sin. And, uh, you know, he's going to come. He's going to judge. The sin of this world is not yet full because we're still here. But when we're gone, and there will still be some that, that believe. There will still be some after the rapture that believe. And then after that period of time, seven years, and he's come and he's taken, then he starts on, you know, pouring out his wrath on this earth. Uh, during that seven years, beginning at the, with the seven years. And so the Amorites, God's timepiece for Israel to return and take possession of the land. And then Jacob gives his beloved son Joseph, his descendants, their own portion, above their brothers, it says in verse 22. Um, and again, that his bones would be uh, going back to the promised land in Exodus 13. And in Joshua 14. But if you f switch to or uh, flip to John 4, 1 through 7, just a little side note about that, um, the Amorites uh, and that piece of land, not the Amorites, but that piece of land given to Joseph. Just the simple story about the, the, woman, uh, the woman at the well, I think, or did I get that wrong? Well, here, Samaritan woman, yes. Uh, but leading up to that, without telling the whole story, therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples did, he left Judea, departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. And he came to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, like we just read. And now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, stayed, uh, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, and a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and that's the beginning of the Samaritan woman and all. But Jacob was the one that gave Joseph, and you can't go through this little chapter and point out where, in fact, that was fulfilled and done in John chapter 4. So the main event of Genesis 48 was Jacob blessing Joseph, adopting his sons as his own, calling them his own sons, putting his right hand on Ephraim. And in fact, in Deuteronomy, Ephraim had his ten thousands and Manasseh had his thousands. Joshua was an Ephraimite. Um, in Josh 14.4, his sons, Joseph's two sons, uh, were the tribes in Israel instead of Joseph. So now we're back down to 13. And then also in Joshua 14, Levi was the priesthood. And they did not have land. They had cities and were given their own inheritance in the land. And people brought their goods to the, to the Levites. So now we're back down to the 12 tribes of Israel. And so not to be confusing about talking 14 tribes of Israel earlier tonight. 
there will, will be 12 tribes, and that carries through the scriptures even to the, the city in Revelation that comes down with its 12 gates um, and the 12 foundations of the apostles and the 12 gates of the 12 tribes of Israel. And so, um, you know, the application, as he goes here, Jacob is in his last years and last days, and it's never really too early. Often it seems later in life that we tend to realize how serious it is what we pass on to our kids. Um, we want the best for them. We hope they avoid the mistakes that we make. And it's an honor that God asks of kids that they honor their parents. Uh, the children should honor their parents. Seniors have experience and wisdom for what they've seen in life. And even if their own decisions were good or bad, and they want to have their kids avoid that. And it's a, a desire, um, even if it's you know, regrets or misfortune. You know, and you cannot live your kid's life for them. You know, God has no grandkids. And really the application here only is that Jacob now is blessing Joseph. And next week will be, if the Lord tarries, we'll be talking about all the tribes and how he gives them their lot in the land and all. And, and, um, but like Ephraim and Manasseh, they became part of the family of Jacob directly. And we become the family of God and sons and daughters of God Almighty and through Jesus Christ because he's the only mediator between God and man and no one comes to the Father but by him. He's our great high priest at the right hand of the Father. He's our only righteousness, our only glory. He makes intercession for us. So in him, we have our identity, we have our substance, we have our strength, that right hand of God. And in him, we have that eternal life and that inheritance in his kingdom, the ultimate promised land. We have a bright future and a glorious future. Amen. So let's pray. Father, uh, words fall short, and um, we know that, uh, and we trust that through your Holy Spirit, um, even if it's a prayer of groaning, that you intercede for us, and you interpret for us, and come before the Father. And so, Lord, we ask that you would work these things into our life. I just pray that we would not be timid or, or let fear distract us, that we would remember that your most powerful right arm is where Jesus stands and where we have our strength and our right hand and that it's specific to when we go out to share the gospel, Lord. So we just pray that you would be uh, showing us that strength as we go out. And uh, just lift this up to you in Jesus' name. Amen.